It is uh, October 28, 2012. Message is called Monkey Business. There is a small video that starts the message, and then we are hopping in the Word because videos cannot do what the Holy Ghost can do through the Word. So, watch this video. First, he laboriously drills a hole in a giant ant heap when he is sure a baboon is watching him because he knows baboons are incurably inquisitive. Next, he puts some wild melon seeds into the hole and works them in so that they drop into a hollow. Then he saunters off, knowing the baboon is burning with curiosity. The baboon doesn't trust that human being at all, so he plays it cool. But he's dying to know what gives in that confounded hole. Finally, Mr. Inquisitive can't take it any longer. He's got to know what's in there. He reaches in, grabs a fistful, and now his hand's too big to come out. If he had the sense to drop the seed, he could free his hand. Now he lets go when it's too late. So that was a smart enough. I just wanted to tell you, Saints. I was in a time of prayer here recently. The Lord had been dealing with me about some sinful feelings, about some of the pollution of this world, about the same kind of difficulties you face whenever you try to accomplish something for the Lord. As I began to dwell on these things that I shouldn't, the Lord simply interrupted me and he said something. You can have this, meaning his presence, or you can have that the sinful feelings I have. But you cannot have both. Friends, sin kills. I've heard the illustration of that monkey business many times before, about the monkey who sticks his hand in the narrow opening and he sees something that he wants and it's so strong the desire that he will not let it go and in the end he's captured because of it. I had to go back to 1974 to find anybody who had filmed it. And yet we see it every day, don't we? Look, this is the nature of addiction. It's the nature of the man who knows that it's destroying his life, but he cannot put down a bottle, cannot put down a syringe, cannot put down a lighter, cannot put down a computer mouse, cannot put down sin. It's a funny thing. We send people to AA to get cured off of substances that kill the body, but we let people sit in church that are addicted to sin and it kills the soul without ever addressing it. I want to tell you that we have a problem in the American body of Christ, and it's a worldwide problem, but like most things, America is decadent. Everything that can be found everywhere else in the world can be found here to a greater extent. We build our cars bigger. We build our boats faster, our houses larger. Whatever the rest of the world has, we have to a greater extent because we are Americans. So this means that if the rest of the world has a few of these problems... We have them even more. In 19, I'm sorry, in 2008, Larry Stocksdale wrote a book called The Remnant. In it, he said about our nation that we are unfathered, we are uncorrected, we are unfruitful, unhealed, and untaught. Guys, this is so true. And the Bible has a prescription, a five-fold prescription for this. Apostles are supposed to be the fathers. Prophets are supposed to be those who correct Evangelists are supposed to be those that teach you to multiply. Pastors are supposed to be those who get you healed, not refer you to a psychologist. 
Teachers are supposed to be those who teach you the word of God. And if we ignore God's plan, if we ignore God's path, then we stay in our sickness and our disease. James 4.4 4 says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses, and it is a choice, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Not is growing cold towards God. Not is thinking about something other than God. He says when you make the choice to be a friend of the world, you become, that sounds instantaneous, an enemy of God. You can have this or you can have that, but you cannot have both. And most of the time what we're doing in our spiritual life is going, you know what, I'll do a few spiritual things, I'll add Jesus to this corner of my life, and when I do that, then I will have this and I will have that. And I'm telling you it's like that monkey trap. You cannot. You're ensnared and don't know it. The rest of that video, that man left that monkey snared to a tree. Left him tied by his neck to a tree. And you know what? The monkey uh, uh, accepted subjugation because he wanted food. What are you feeding your spirit? And is it freeing you, freeing you? Or is it bringing you into subjection? As I began to think about this, Last week I had been talking to you about Samson. We talked about Samson having a rock and, and, a, and a hollow place open up. And we talked about the Enhakor principle where he's a fountain for him who cries. We talked about Samson's jawbone, the jawbone of a donkey that was fresh every day. Many of you enjoyed the message. I heard things like, oh, that's the best message I've heard and, and, and really good things and I'm happy. But you know what? Unfortunately, that's not what defines Samson's life, is it? When you think of Samson, you don't think of the jawbone. You don't think of the man who had the in-hakor principle and God filled him up to overflowing. Very often we think about Samson's defeat. How did he get that way, though? Turn with me to Judges 13. While you're turning to Judges 13, I do want to give you one more reminder from 1 John 2.15. It says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, does not come from the Father, but from the world. The gospel writers intended for us to have to make a choice. There was a valley in Israel called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. It meant the Valley of Decision. And God often put his people there where they had to make a choice. I hope this morning we're put into a position to choose. Because the reality is, outside of Christ, we stand condemned already. The scripture says it. Outside of Christ, we've already chosen the world. We already have that Yetzirah, the evil inclination. We already are born fascinated with everything that we should not be fascinated with. From the time your cutest children can speak, they lie. From the time that they can own anything, the cupcake you just gave them, they want somebody else's too, they're covetous. And you know what? Adults don't change a lot from that. That same nature is bound up inside of us. We just learn to cover it. We begin to believe we can have this and we can have that. Judges 13 in the first verse says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. The first thing that I hope to, to leave no question about is that when we sin, it brings subjugation. Whether you see it or not, it is there. It brings entanglement. It brings 
the enemy power in our lives. You know, today we call it weakness. We call it not God's best for you, right? By the way, calling some sin just not God's best for you is like saying suicide is bad for your health. I mean, this is the biggest understatement the world has ever made. Of course, we're supposed to be the anointed sons of God speaking the words of God, not Dr. Phil-like theology. We're not supposed to do that. You know what, though? If the body of Christ did not have such an appetite for it, there would not be people serving it every day. Somewhere inside of us, we have to develop a hatred for sin. Right? We have to hate what it does to us, what it does to them. There has to be a moment where something that was enticing suddenly becomes sickening because you love the Lord that much. Sin needs to become sickening to us. The way that this works is it brought subjugation to the people. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. In the midst of impossible situations, the Lord always interjects himself. You have impossible situations in this room. I have them in my life. If you close your eyes for just a second, you can probably think of a relative that is at the top of the most unsavable list. These are the kind that God wants. I was once on that list. If you had asked everybody in my high school who is the least likely to spend his life serving Jesus, I think without any question, they would have said me. God is into doing the impossible. It's what shows that He's supernatural, that He's extraordinary. So He picks people that have incredible deficits. And He says, I can do something with you if you're willing. But it requires a commitment from them too. It requires something from them as well. Look what He told her. Now see to it that no, that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean. Because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head because the boy is to be a Nazarite set apart from birth. And he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Friends, mercy in their lives brought a deliverer. Mercy brought a savior. They sinned and it brought subjugation. But mercy brought the deliverer. Now think about the woman that is being told this. The boy is the deliverer. She's not. But mom is given a command. Why is she given a command? She's actually like the body of Christ here. She's not the deliverer, but she's connected to him. The same blood is flowing through him and her. That's the way it works with a mother and child. The same nutrition is flowing through them both. There's a day when all that is left of her name will reside in him. That's the way it works for a mother. Samson's mom was required to keep the diet of a Nazarite because her body and Samson's were connected. Likewise, you are the body of Christ. You and the deliverer share the same life-giving blood, the same substance of the Father, friends. Dwell on that for a second. You share the substance of the Father with Christ and the nourishment of the Word of God. You may not actually be the deliverer, but you are the extension of Jesus' body. All too often, the church of the living God sees Jesus as the Savior, but does not see our connection to Him. Spiritually speaking, we're eating the same things. We're participating in the same things. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Without holiness, no one 
will see the Lord. Not a few of you. No one will see the Lord. If this woman did not keep the word that God gave her, you know what? The promise would be to no avail. We act like the promises of God because they're irrevocable. He doesn't take back the promise. He holds out the promise forever. But this does not mean that you can walk in disobedience every day of your life and inherit the promise. The promises are always contingent upon something. Your whole life belonging to Him. This is what it means when we say He's Lord and when He's Savior. So let me ask you, is your diet His diet? Do you live for the things that He lives for? This is why we're having communion today, friends. Because it breaks my heart as I think about the nastiness bound up inside of me. You don't have to push me very far before you find flesh. You know what that means? I'm not nearly dead enough to self yet. You don't have to push me very far before you find out that my heart still needs to be circumcised. I am a work in progress, and so are you. But this is no excuse to sit on your laurels. It's no excuse to say, because I've declared a thing, I'm done. Declaring's the beginning, friends. It's the commitment phase. We have to follow through. How many of you have promised your lives to the Lord? How many of you have said, He's my King? One of you? Two of you? How many of you have promised your lives to Him? I know, we're used to coming in a building, sitting in neat little rows, and then we sit and we soak, and we sit and we soak, and we listen to some sage on a stage, and this makes us holy. What makes us holy is when we do what His Word says. Too often our church is conditioning us for stillbirth. It's conditioning us for the promise of life, but the reality is death, and we all just act like we don't see it. When you read the first ten chapters of Acts, this is normal Christianity. This is what it's supposed to look like. You know why we don't dare to believe it? Because we're so often not tapped into the same life-giving nourishment. The same substance of the fire. It's available. We, we, we declare it. But then we love our monkey trap too, don't we? Yes. Is there something that you need to let go of so that the presence of God can flow through your life? Come on now. Good. We have we have a, a, a slide that we're working on, right? Because this is what churches do. We look for new ways to present uh, the 2,000-year-old the or 4,000-year-old truth. It says, please silence your cell phones. Prepare to forgive your relatives because the presence of God is at hand. But you know what? That message is 2,000 years old. We ought not have to put it on a slide before a worship service. How many services can we walk into and still be mad at our father for something he did 20 years ago? How many days can we go by and ignore the words of Christ and think we will have the promises of Christ? It doesn't work. Sin brings slavery. It brings slavery. And just like everybody else in slavery, we think we're entitled to all kinds of things. Guys, when you are free, when you can eat from the king's table, when you know that He hears you. You don't need somebody else to do something for you. You're looking to do something for them. But when you feel like you're a victim all of the time, because you are not accessing what God has called you to access, then you want everybody to do everything for you. Spoon feed me a message that agrees with these 14 points that we've already agreed about and do it in a new and exciting way or I will fire you and find someone else. Praise God I don't work for anybody. Amen. Accountable to everyone and work for no one. You know, I've got one father that went to be with Jesus. He raised me. Another sitting in a hospital room right now. 
contemplating his life at Texas Orthopedic Hospital. <coughs> One gave me many, many spiritual uh, jewels. Gary Kinchin is an amazing human being. I, I love him still when we worship. I, I think about his presence there with the Holy, Holy Fathers that went before us. My other father taught me some other things, most of them not very spiritual. But he did tell me one time that the secret to success in sales is make sure your boss resides in another state. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Our boss is in the heavenly realm, friends. He's given you all the autonomy in the world. But don't think that we have his approval simply because we invoke it upon ourselves. We have his approval when we walk in his ways. This is what the word teaches. I just wanted to tell you about Samson. That he was born for deliverance. This was his calling. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, we're not going to read, but it says, Do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. Now is the time for us to examine our ways. Say, so, you know, I was joking with the elders about needing, uh, needing their help today. So y'all pray for me. I'm going to preach myself under a pulpit today. I'm going to tell everybody about every problem I have. I'm telling about the depth of depravity of the human nature and the almighty salvation of the living God. One of them jokingly said, do you still think there are sinners out there? <laughs> uh, there's one here. But I've been called to be more than that. And you've been called to be more than that. And I refuse to let sin define my personality. The heavenly host agreed. And they agreed before the foundations of this world were laid that the blood of the Lamb could provide you with righteousness. They agreed on that. Before you ever failed, redemption was paid for. Amen. But knowing about redemption is not the same as walking in redemption. Go with me to Judges 14. First verse. This is, it's not fair to describe a problem endlessly and not present solutions. The worst preaching that I ever do is when I harp on an issue and harp on it. And buddy, can I do that? Some of you know it. And I'll tell you in six different ways something's wrong, but never get to how you fix it or what's right. And I'm going to confess, sometimes I just don't know, right? Sometimes I have to go fall on my face with an open Bible and cry out to the living God just like you. There are no supermen in the kingdom, friends. There are ordinary people that God can do extraordinary things through. We need to stop our hero worship. We need to recognize that everybody in the kingdom is made of the same stuff and be dependent upon the Holy One. Otherwise, you're continually disappointed. You go from one demagogue to another. And the poor guy, he didn't mean to be lifted up. He just was because it's what we wanted. And then when you find out that he has a problem in his life, you're broken and blame it on Jesus. You have problems in your life too. But we don't have to be slaves to them. We have power over them. Are you in Judges 14? Yeah. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. I don't know whether we should be happy things don't work this way now or happy then, uh, if they did. You know, In India, this is a normal thing. Dad, mom, get her for me as my wife. And then the negotiations began. We leave it up to our young people. Of course, our success rate is not overwhelming, is it? So, oh, well, that's a lost people problem. Then why is the divorce rate the same in the church? I think we have a sin problem, friends. I think we have an unfaithfulness problem. What's worse than that, I think we've glossed over it with religious language. 
His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all your people? You must, go to, must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. His parents did not know that this was the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling Israel. Samson had a desire for the enemy as a wife. Listen, the fact that God used this did not make it right. You understand what I'm saying? God used sinful men who nailed his son to a tree. He used that for all of our benefit. That does not mean that the men who drove the nails and hung the sign and cried crucify him were doing the right thing. Sometimes we get confused in Christianity. Mercy and grace are a blessing to us and it becomes also a snare. We think that because God did not allow us to have overwhelming immediate consequence from our sin, then he must not care. I mean, it's all about grace anyway, isn't it? You know, the church growth movement with such emphasis on how many people you can draw to a seat teaches things. You can go find books in any Christian bookstore on the grace explosion that you need to be preaching about. I've been making fun of it for years, but that hadn't helped us any. Samson had a desire for something that was not godly, and yet God would use that ungodly desire to cause him to fight. Now watch this. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. Who's he with? Mom and dad, right? He's with mom and dad, and he's headed down towards Timnah. As they, they is one of those pronouns that has to do with more than one person, right? As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring towards him. The Spirit of the Lord came on him in power so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. He told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman and liked her. What has happened that is not in the text? How is it that they go to the vineyards together, at least towards the vineyards, and he is the only one attacked by the lion, he is the only one who sees it torn, he is the only one that knows about it and he doesn't tell them. At some point, he must have separated from them. Now, do you remember that Samson's mama was told the boy will be a Nazarite? In Hebrew, this idea of a Nazarite comes from Numbers, the sixth chapter and first verse. We're not going to go there. I've taught on it many times before. A Strong's number for a word, 6381, is Paul. And it means an extraordinary, a miraculous a difficult or wondrous thing. And in Hebrew, the way that number six reads, says if anyone wants to make a vow of separation that is extraordinary, wondrous, miraculous, difficult, this is how you do it. And then it goes on to describe a Nazarite's life. And it was a life that was just a little bit outside the norm, a little bit more set apart, a little bit more costly. And one of the very first things that you had to know as a Nazarite is you are not allowed to touch a grape. Not the skin of a grape, not the juice of a grape, nothing fermented, period. Samson and his parents are headed somewhere. Where are they headed towards? Timnah. And there's a vineyard outside Timnah. And suddenly, young Samson breaks away from his parents. Part of the story not told. We know this because the parents didn't witness the lion attack. 
So in a place he shouldn't be, something happens. He's attacked. Come on, friends, how many times have you been somewhere you shouldn't be and something happened that you wish shouldn't happen? Right? Sometimes avoiding sin is about avoiding situation. Yeah? Say, so, well, I, I just, uh, I don't know how that happened. Well, let's start with where were you? You were sitting in front of your computer? You were at her house? You were in your car? You don't know how it happened? Sounds premeditated to me, friend. What do you mean you don't know how it happened? Oh my God, you can hear people breathing in here. <laughs> why do you think that is? We know why it is. Nobody simply falls into sin. It starts with a desire, James. And that desire entices us. And then it drags us. And then after you sin, it gives birth to death. And if you keep sinning, it'll kill your faith altogether. The first chapter of James says this without question. The easiest place to kill it is at the desire level. But if you've already separated from your parents, already strolling around the vineyards, God said don't go in. Are you any surprised you're under attack? Do you think it'd be better if Samson got mauled or if he didn't get mauled? We go, oh, that Samson, the Spirit of God came upon Samson. That's how this is usually preached. And he tore up that devil. Yeah, but you know what that did? It created in him the idea, I can go stroll in the vineyards. And if I am attacked, I'm so gifted I can handle it. How many men of God have been so wrong about this? The 1980s were littered with this to the extent that it made TV ministry a joke. In the 80s, nobody in my house was really serving God. And if we saw a preacher on TV, we simply changed the channel because they were all liars and thieves. This was our thought. Now, that's not as much commentary on everybody on TV in 1980 as it was the state of our own household, but am I so far off the base that nobody in here has thought that? How does it happen, guys? Doesn't it happen when we are not judged immediately for sin that we've committed? Do you know for him to be in the vineyard was wrong? How do you know beyond any question that Samson knew that it was wrong? But he told neither his father nor his mother. You know, when you got things in your life that you're ashamed to tell the people around you, you know that it was wrong. Wouldn't you have gone and danced and carried that lion carcass around and go, look what God did through me? The fact that he couldn't do that said exactly what was going on in his heart. I don't want mom and dad to know where I was. Because they had to ask me how this happened. What do you mean you were in the vineyard? You're a Nazarite, son. You were raised better than that. Huh? If there's something in our lives that we would be ashamed to tell mom and dad, what do you think King Jesus thinks about it? Because he's a whole lot more holy than mom and dad. If you've lived long enough, you find out mom and dad got problems just like you do. Hmm? He's in a place he shouldn't be. He's in a place he shouldn't be. And friends, that is the beginning of the problem. Samson is a Nazarite. And he ended up alone in a vineyard. So he became subject to an attack. And it's the grace of God that he made it through the attack. But unfortunately, grace very often is not the blessing in the end that it is in the beginning. So how could grace be a bad thing? Well, it becomes greasy. 
He didn't tell mom and dad he was sinning. He seemed to get away with it, which only encouraged sin all the more. This is why in our lives, guys, consequence can never be removed from restoration. You understand what I'm saying? We do not do our children any favors, and we do not do ourselves any favors when sin has no cost. We said, well, Jesus paid for it. Jesus paid for all my sin. It's all on Jesus. It's all on Jesus. This is true. And yet, sin has consequence. Go murder somebody and tell the judge, oh, Jesus paid for that sin. He might have taken the retribution that you deserve from the Heavenly Father, but there are still consequences to sin. And if you remove the consequence from sin, you know what happens? We embolden the sinner. Tell me I'm wrong in our lives. Sin that is done in private continues in private. Amen. This is why the Bible says, would an elder rebuke him publicly? When is the last time you heard that? Oh, well, we hear it if it gets caught in a massage parlor, right? That was one here recently. And I'm not picking on that man, not at all. <coughs> I wish that somebody had rebuked him publicly before it went that far. I wish he had invited it. I wish there were people close enough to him that could see it. I want those things in my life. I want them. What do you want in your life? Do you want to hide in here? Because when there's 10 of us, you can't do it. When there's 20, you would think you could, but you can't. Now, our seats are getting full. There's a day where we either have to build more or, or have more services. And you know what? Some just want to slip in, slide under the radar, and slip out. If this is what you want, what do you think you're going to get in the kingdom? And you know what? I'm not the judge. Never have been. I'm not a good judge of me, personally. Right? I need brothers in my life that can look objectively and tell me I'm hitting the mark or not hitting the mark. I have that inward witness, but at the same time, you know, if your heart is deceitful beyond all, all measure, Jeremiah said. How many people do you know say, well, I know in my heart. What is your heart worth? Shechem. Shechem, the son of Hamor, for the city of Shechem. Do you remember what his heart told him? He was in love with Dina. His heart was drawn to her. So you know what he did? He raped her. Does that sound like love to y'all? He said it was in his heart. Our hearts are a worthless judge of who we are. You know what's a judge of who you are? How you measure up to the gospel. How you measure up to the word. Not a select sentence in the word. All of the word. The searing conviction of the Holy Ghost in our life. We should fear God, friends. Amen. We should fear God. Amen. I sat with a dear brother and he asked me if I'd seen the fire of God. I have not. I never visually saw that Shekinah. He spoke to me. Many other things have happened in my life, but that's an experience I still long for. He said, man, if you could see it, if you could see it, everything changes. And I was preaching about the fire of God the best way that I know how. But if you could see His presence in this room, what would you be getting right right now that you're contemplating privately? Come on now, are you hearing me? Yeah. If he's standing in this room, do you really hang on to the petty argument with your wife? Because you just, your pride just won't let you go get it right right now. Do you really do that if he's standing here as a pillar of fire? Because just because you can't see him doesn't mean he's not. Man, when the presence of God really fills the room, you get right quickly. When he spoke to me in 1993, there was no question, there was no debate, there was no theological argument. You know what there was? A hundred percent immediate obedience. 
because he's the ultimate. Yeah. And we call that mercy. When we say nothing happens. We call that mercy. It might just be emboldening. A sin. Look at the eighth verse. Sometime later, I wish I knew how much time, but the Bible doesn't tell me everything I want to know. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. Where did he kill the lion? Isn't that crazy? You go stop by the vineyard, Tommy, you know, I mean, I'm not going to touch it. I know I'm not supposed to touch it, but I'm just, you know, I'm just going to go hang out there, right? I'm going to go do some Facebook ministry. Did I say that out loud? So, you're just there hanging out, right? And what happened? You're attacked by a lion. But it's okay, y'all. I was strong in the Lord. Look at me. Beat that chest. And I killed the lion. Of course, sometime later, you know what I'm not free from? The memory of the time I was in the vineyard where I was not supposed to be. Set apart from birth. Even my mama was not supposed to be there. And so now I'm thinking about something I shouldn't be thinking about. What's it doing? It's pulling me back towards the vineyard because I just want to go look, y'all. Just say Of course, what do you see there? You see something that's enticing, don't you? Is that honey, Dustin? Oh, man, what that must taste. And I kind of earned it. I mean, I killed that line. Now desire is just full grown in me. And you know what? I'm going to, I'm just going to have a sample out of a dead carcass. When the sons of God are eating honey out of dead things, friends, that's a new low. There's a dumpster back here. I invite every one of you to go look at it. After the service, go back there. If you find the Saudi Arabian prince in that dumpster, let me know. Okay? If you find one of those guys that is worth hundreds of billions of dollars sitting in that dumpster back there eating his lunch, I want to know. Why don't they do that? Because they're princes. How many, how many meals have we had from a dumpster? Oh, it's sweet like honey in our mouths, but what is it in your stomach? It's bitter, isn't it? This is sin, friends. Sin is when you end up in a place you shouldn't be eating out of death, calling it sweet in your mouth, but it is bitter in your soul. How long are we going to live on that diet? See, I think you're better than that. I think you're called to more than that. I think that the sons of God are capable of extraordinary things. And you don't have to contend with the lion in the vineyard. You can contend with him in the open country. Amen. You find out he was a chihuahua with a megaphone all of the time. Of course, when you're in the vineyard, you can't even tell people about your interactions with him, can you? And therein lies his power. Secrecy. You might even find yourself not wanting to walk into a building like this because they might know. They might, somebody might say so. Or dear God, in a group like us, somebody might even prophesy. Or that crazy fat preacher up there might say it. You just never know what could happen there. You know what? Let's go find a more comfortable place. But why is it comfort? Because we're all hanging out at the same vineyard? See, I want to be around people that compel me to holiness. I want to be around people that don't look me in the eye and say something they don't mean. I want to be around people that love me enough to say, you know, Pastor, you preach a good word, but are you living it? I assure you I love you enough to do that. We don't do each other any favors when we pretend like everything's okay and we both know it's not. 
You can go to church anywhere in America and get that. I assume God brought you here for a different reason. I think he brought you here because there is a solution to our unfathered, uncorrected, unmultiplied, untaught, unhealed generation. I think there's a solution to it. And all we have to do is do things the Bible way. Let's go from here to... Uh, how about Judges 16? I want you to remember that Samson had to turn aside from the way he was already going to go to Tibet. <coughs> to go back and eat from that lion, he had to turn away from the right way. I pray to the living God that we don't turn away from the right way. I think it's right that I should probably quote something from Jude for you. It's Jude, and it's the fourth verse. It says, For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality. Tell me that secret men have not slipped in. Tell me that we've not bought into the idea that because we didn't die in the vineyard, God approves of what we've done. That He's really just kind of looking the other way. Tell me that this is not a huge factor in the American Christian's walk. He goes on to say, and deny Jesus Christ, our only Lord and Savior. We say, no, well, we don't know anybody that denies Jesus. Of course, Titus says you can confess Him with your mouth and deny Him with your actions. And he was quoting Isaiah who said the same thing. If we say He is Lord but do not do what He says, it is the same as denying Him. If we call it grace when we avoid punishment over and over and over and remain unrepentant, we're changing God's grace. God's grace is that there's a way to repent, not a way to continue in sin. Man, man, can you hear that? You got a place in your heart for that message? I hope you do. I want to go touch the world. I really do. I want to do it to the extent that the Stephens own nothing. We really don't. We own nothing. It's all in with the gospel. And you know what? If he doesn't have all of our hearts, then giving him all of our possessions is worth nothing. If there's some secret little chamber, something that we're hiding, then it's not worth anything. It's just a matter of time before the devil will beat us and choke us to death with it and it'd be an embarrassment for the kingdom. I don't want that. So I make it my aim every day to work through my salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, brother, you should know that we're secure. You should know you're secure when you're right with God. That's good. I don't know about you, but i got to get right with God every now and then. Yeah. Amen. It just so happens, Tommy, that things that occur to me are not always the things that He wants for me. I find myself looking straight into His will, just like Peter, and saying, Oh, Lord, no, never. God wouldn't do that. Of course, He gets to do what He wants to. That's, that's part of being God, right? And we confess it all of the time. Go in Judges 16. Yes. In Judges 16. One day Samson went to, we don't want to start there. Let's go to 18. 16, verse 18. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more, he has told me everything. How blind did he have to be? She lied to him three times. You ever feel like Samson must have been 
I'm also bound idiot. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's that certain jock you're thinking about that you knew in high school, right? You're thinking about me? You're kidding me? <laughs> That's not even believable anymore, Spence. When I was your age, it was still believable. Now nobody can even picture that. This poor, poor guy. But you know what? You can get so blinded by sin's deceitfulness, so hardened by the nature of it, that you have just an appetite for more honey and you don't care where it came from. It's an addiction, friends. It's an addiction just like heroin. It's addiction just like any other addiction. And before long, whatever lines you said you would never cross, whatever borders you said that they were impenetrable, you've gone farther than you wanted to go. And you're trapped and you can't get out. And that's when the devil turns on you. And he begins to tell you, there's no hope for you anymore. You abused his grace all of these years, and now there is no hope for you. See, the same guy that pushes you in the fight laughs at you when you get knocked down. That's just how he is. Been in my ear my whole life, just like he's been in your ear. So now Samson has been lied to. She obviously does not have his best interest in mind, but he can't see it. He's blinded by sin. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, Come back once more. He has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with silver in their hands. Kind of like Judas Iscariot returned with silver in his hands. Just like it had been prophesied about 30 pieces of silver. Sold out the deliverer of the people for self-interest. Doesn't that make you sick? When we say a name like Benedict Arnold, most Americans get sick. But in the kingdom, what are we every time? We know the good that we should do, and we do not do it. What are we? Come on now, your sin's not any prettier than mine. It's not. Your sin's no less foul than mine. And every time we know the will of the deliverer, and for self-interest, whatever it might be, lust of the eyes, pride of life, whatever it might be. They return with the silver in their hands. I hope she enjoyed it. <coughs> Having put him to sleep in her lap, she called the man to shave off the seven braids of his hair. And so began to... What's that word? Subdue him. Oh my goodness. Did you know that the calling of man was to subdue the enemies of God? Genesis 1.26 says it. It says, go forth and subdue the earth. This implies resistance. It implies a fight. So much so that God said in Genesis 2.18, it's not good that man's alone. There needs to be a helper that's suitable for him. There needs to be two. Need to be two halves of one calling that are together fighting for the presence of God. He said, go out and multiply. Fill the earth with this image of God everywhere you go. Go subdue the earth. And instead, man became subject to the basest elements in the earth. And our story has played out over and over and over. Now the deliverer, now the conqueror, the man who's come to set them free is asleep in the lap of sin, completely subdued. What a struggle. 
Samson could kill a thousand men with a jawbone, but he couldn't contend with one prostitute. Was it her fault? No, there were seeds born in his heart much, much earlier in his life. He learned that he could go to the vineyard without price. He learned that he could battle the lion and eat honey from its carcass without cost. He learned that he could do things in secret that nobody would know about in public. Friends, why do you think Jesus said we would give an account? He's letting us know there's nothing that's secret. Come on, let that sink in for a minute. There's nothing that is secret. They can tell you what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. They're liars. They work for a liar. Their father is a liar. They steal people's lives. They victimize people and they make money off of it. They're laden with silver in their hands while they bring people into subjection to hell itself. And it's an industry. The devil has put the American church to sleep in its lap and shaved our heads. Look at this line. And his strength left him. What is the strength of the church? What does John 15 teach is the way to fruitfulness? It's your connection with Jesus. Being set apart was a symbol of his hair, but being connected to God is where his strength flowed from, and instead he fell asleep in the lap of sin because there had been no consequence. What would happen? What would happen if the first time he had touched her grape, he lost a hand? What would have happened if the first time he lied to his mom and dad, he lost his tongue? Now relax, we're not going Sharia here. But it would be better to lose an eye, lose a hand, than it is to go into hell. Didn't Jesus teach this? Yes. There has to be consequence for sin. There has to. Well, Jesus paid for it. Yeah, he also told you to confess it. When's the last time you walked up to somebody that you know, somebody that you love, somebody that you care what they think about you, and said, I sinned. And you didn't leave it that vague, you told them how. Well, they might think less of us, Dustin. Maybe they need to. Maybe they'll get to see your progress. Maybe they'll get to see you go through a, a valley and reach a mountaintop. We've learned to lift up heroes, friends. That's all we do. In the American churches, we create new heroes, and when they fall, we forget about them. There's a pastor in Baton Rouge that's just had a great big fall. It breaks my heart. He started his church the same month that I did. President of the United States a few years ago mentioned him in an address. As far as I can tell, he's just out to pastor now. Not pastor, pastor. Who lifted him that high? And why did he let him? So that when he was in trouble, nobody would help him. It's his fault. He lied. It's his fault. He kept it secret. It's their fault. They lifted. It's their fault. But you know what? This is the pattern we've all learned. What if we could have an honest come to Jesus meeting? Where we were just regular people. Who got right before God and said, Lord, I want to sin. You're the power over sin. Lord, this is the areas that I'm failing in. And if you would just grow my hair again. You know the most damnable part of this whole thing? Samson didn't know that the Lord left him. I hadn't read that yet. Hey, you can get to a place where you don't realize God is not with you. You know how he got to the place though? He assumed God was with him no matter what he did. I mean, God was with him in the vineyard. It was grace. 
God was with him. God was with him. God was with him. That was the problem. Don't let God's goodness to you become a snare. Don't let his deliverance in your life become a snare. Look, I can hear it now. Pastor, were you talking? I'm talking about me. I've been that stupid monkey. I identify with him. I thought I can get those pumpkin seeds, man. It's okay. It's, it's a freedom in Christ. I can get that pumpkin seed and I, and I can hold my weapons of righteousness. And you don't even realize God's not into what you're doing. Anymore. You know the best thing that ever happened to this congregation, that ever happened to this pastor's family, these elders? Our church has grown slowly. He denied us the immediate success that everyone reads and talks about. It wouldn't have been success. It would have been a big crash. He's allowed this congregation to grow in proportion with your pastor's character. That's how it's supposed to be. What kind of father? Any, any first-time fathers in here? Anybody got a new baby? Jorge, you got a baby back there. A beautiful baby. That's Nathaniel, right? I get it right? Okay, Nathaniel in whom there's no God. Is it hard to raise Nathaniel? Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. Amen, it's hard. I had the most devilish thoughts when my son came and the most godly thoughts when they were intermingled. It was weird. I wanted to hold him up and dedicate him before the Lord every time, but sometimes when that diaper kept overflowing and the tears kept flowing, I thought that while I was holding him up, I might bounce him on a wall. I know that's sick. I'm telling you up front. And if you're not a parent, you might not understand. But having been a parent for a long time, I did have those thoughts. Praise God, I took him captive. I restrained him in Jesus. And Judah's relatively normal today. <laughs> Eventually, I had two children. And then three. And then adopted two more. And you know what? I handled five children better than I did one. You know why? Because I'm a work in progress. And so are you. Do you know why the living God gives you success slowly? Because Proverbs says, an inheritance gained all at once in the end will not be a blessing to you. Amen. How many men have been trapped by their own success in the kingdom? How many men are self-intoxicated by what God's done through them and they don't realize He's not with them? They're telling 10-year-old stories. With all of my heart, I want to join arms with you. I want to go to the nations of the world and do something as basic as feed babies. Somebody told me to clarify. When I say we have 40 cents out of every dollar that goes to world missions, I don't mean you give a dollar to world missions and of the dollar you gave to world missions, 40 cents goes. I mean every dollar that comes into this building that touches our hands in any way. 40 cents is going to world missions. Is there a family in here that's tithing above 40%? I challenge you. We're doing everything we know how to do to set a righteous example, including publicly preaching about our own troubles. Are you going to join us somewhere in this mess? Are we going to see God do something that is amazing? Oh, man. Samson's hair did grow again. It was his death that brought life just like Jesus. I'd like to tell you that when we accept no mentors in our lives, we become unfallen. We need to stop it. There needs to be somebody in your life who can tell you you're wrong and you'll listen. When we have no accountability in our life, we have no prophets, we've become uncorrectable. There needs to be men in our lives that challenge our direction. When we are unable to produce fruit, 
when there is no multiplication in our lives, when we've been born again five years and not produced one Christian. Come on now, would you, would, if you planted a seed and a tree grew, how many decades would you go by without it producing an apple and still call it an apple tree? Come on, where is the multiplication? Where is the leaven that works through the whole loaf? Could it be that somewhere the leaven inside of us lost its fervor? I mean, if there was enough power to change your life, why is it not overflowing into others' lives and seeing change there? I want to challenge you this morning to something. You're seeing no people converted in 10 years? Something's wrong with your Christianity. It's become selfish. It's become self-centered. You are the center of it. How can you be born again for 10 years and not see anybody born again? If the apostles had done that, where would we be? Mm. Oh, pastor, you're going to beat us over the head to go make converts? Now, I'm going to beat you over the head to get your life right, just like mine, and converts will take care of themselves. When guilt is gone, when subjugation is gone, when you feel on fire for the Lord, others will see it. They'll ask you. When we will not allow others to lead us into healing, when we will not allow a pastor in our lives, then we're unhealed. When we won't accept or don't know the word, we listen to sound bites like political statements, then we're untaught. There can only be one cure, friends. Numbers 21, verse 8 says, The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. Oh my goodness, make a snake and put it on a pole. You know what the sick part of this? This is the symbol of, of the medical community today. Now none of them will acknowledge Jesus or Moses. But Blue Cross Blue Shield would not have their logo without him. Most hospitals, you walk, every medical institute. Did you know that our king was so powerful, so influential, he came from a place in the first chapter of John that said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Y'all remember that? Like, this is nowhere. This is Bunky, Louisiana. Is anybody here from Bunky? Okay, this is Bunky, Louisiana. It's nowhere. It's fur. You can't even get there from here. You have to start somewhere else. That's Nazareth. And you know there are 3,000 graduate programs across the world that are dedicated to discussing what he said while he was in that little town. They're still debating his words. They're learning them in foreign languages. They're trying to adopt them into their life. He came from nowhere. And his word was so powerful that the first universities in this country were dedicated to learning about. Anybody written a check this week? Did you tell anybody it's 2012 this year? It's 2012 years since he touched the planet. You're supposed to be attached to him. You're supposed to be eating with his nourishment. You're supposed to have his blood running through your veins. If he could never leave an 80 mile strip of land and touch the whole world, what is our excuse? So, oh, well, he was Jesus. How about those little scared Jewish apostles? Right? Eleven of them. Only one lived to be an old man. 
They touched the world. They changed the world. They had three years of seminary training on foot, backpack ministry. Three years on the job training. How much time have we had? We can't make a convert in two decades? You think maybe we're living a little bit selfishly? The church of Jesus Christ multiplies because the life uh, of the body of Jesus multiplies. Right? You hear Rick's testimony? Rick, God's Gibeonite sitting back there? You hear his testimony, it makes you want to get saved again. Maybe we need to be sharing our testimony. Right? Brad Hall and I had no fellowship. We, we were married in the same family, had no fellowship. Right? He didn't like me, I didn't like him. And then I got born again, and we had all things in common friends immediately, right? Something of our nature changes. And when it changes, people go, I want that. I'm not talking about growing a big church. I'm talking about growing the kingdom. I'm talking about the kingdom growing in you first and it being so powerful, so persuasive that it overwhelms people's lives. They had to look at the snake on the pole. And you know what the snake was? Them. Them. The snake was a symbol of the poisonous venom that was sin of grumbling and backbiting and refusing to follow God. And he made them look it in the eye before he would heal them. There has to be a consequence if there's going to be a restoration. We're always looking for the easy way. Friends, there is no easy way. There's Yahweh. There's the way. There's only one way. And it's narrow. It strips the flesh off you as you walk through it. If it hadn't cost you anything to be a Christian, you might not be a Christian. That's just the God's honest truth. I'm sorry. If it has never hurt you, if you've never come to the place where it felt like you were being crushed because you had to obey Him and you did not want to do what He told you to do, then you may never have encountered the cross of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Luke 22. Actually, we might, yeah, turn with me to Luke 22, 44. Enjoy this will begin that first picture. There. When we think of the cross, this is the kind of picture you get. You get something that's pretty, right? Aren't there beautiful, soothing colors in that? <coughs> right? Anybody wearing a gold one in here? I'm not picking on you. Anybody got a gold cross on? Raise a hand. You got a gold cross on your body. Really? Falling out of vogue. You got to be a 1980s rock star to wear one. <laughs> Billy Idol used to have one on his ear. I don't think that made him a Christian. I wore a McDonald's wrapper in my car for years. It didn't make it a hamburger. <laughs> this is what we think of when we think of the cross. And that's not fair. You know why? If that were the cross, you'd still be in your sin. You know why? Nobody's dying. What's the next picture, Joel? This is leading up to the cross. This is agony, friends. Look at the sweat on his brow. I want you to hear this verse, Luke 22, 44. And being in anguish. Come on, say it out loud. Anguish. anguish. Has being in Christ ever put you in anguish? David Wilkerson used to preach about the anguish of his soul. Has being in Jesus ever gripped you to the point where you felt like you were being pressed on every side, but the weight of failing was greater than the weight of moving forward. You know one way that you end up on the mission field? 
One way you end up on the mission field is when it costs you more to stay at home than it costs you to go. You can't live under the weight. It's fire shut up in your bones. You just can't do it. You must be obedient. He was in anguish for us. And that anguish bought something for us. Him struggling before the Father. Him praying, not my will, but yours. In Gethsemane, Jesus took our cares and worries, our anxieties upon himself so that we could have peace. He wanted us to reconnect with his Father. His brow brings you shalom. If we could learn to do what he did right there, fall to our knees and say, not my will, but yours, and recognize there's a difference. See, Samson got it confused. He thought his will was God's will. Nobody suffers from that, huh? You know, tomorrow I'm going to go do this and that, and, and a year from now I'll be doing this and this, and you know where I'm going to retire? And you know what my kids are going to grow up to be? We've got it all planned out for God, don't we? The man fell, and I'm using man literally here. You know, 2,000 years after the cross, we struggle because we look back and we see him as God. Do you know what they were struggling with? He looked an awful lot like a regular human being. That was their struggle. We forget in all of the divine power there is still a man here who is being so pressed, so crushed by God's will that he is sweating as if it were drops of blood. He did that so that we could have peace. He wrestled with God's will once and for all so that you could win that wrestle. His spirit's inside you. Unless you don't pass that test. Which is possible. Maybe you like them. I don't know. Some three-quarters of America says they're Christians, but I don't know if they'll pass the test. There's a righteous judge. His brow was supposed to bring you peace. Has it brought you peace, friends? The next one's going to be hard to see. And you know what? I encourage you to see it. To look into it. There's a reason. In John 19, the first verse, it says, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Isaiah 52, 14 says, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, his form marred beyond any human likeness. Jesus faced that Roman lictor. He was wounded to the point of disfigurement <coughs> so that you could be whole. His back meant to bring you healing. 1 Peter 2, 24 says it this way, By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus faced agony so that you could be healed in every dimension of your life. His back brings you healing. Is that easy for you to see? No. One of my friends was a minister in Israel. We watched this movie and he passed out. He hit the ground. When I watched it, people asked me what I thought about it. I said, I feel like I just watched Matthew beaten to death in a parking lot. How do you really feel about Jesus? Is he simply a historical figure to you that you acknowledge as God, but he's not God to you in your life daily? Looking into that cross, thinking about what he did, is supposed to bring us peace because it gives you the strength to crucify your own will gives you the strength to look at your sin hung upon him and say, I will not do it anymore. I will not add to that burden. I'm going to walk in holiness. His hands, friends, Colossians 
and he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us. And that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, it symbolized the Hebrew custom. It said your debts are paid. They used to take their debts and put them on the front door. And when the debt was paid, you'd take the bottom of it, fold it to the top of it, and drive a nail right through the center of it. In John 20, 25, one disciple remarks, But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. Jesus' hands were nailed to the cross so that our debts, our promissory notes, our arrest warrants could be canceled. So you close your eyes in here for a minute. Can you put your hands in his holes, your hands in his hands? Can you begin to believe so that he might bring you forgiveness? Following Jesus, friends, is not simply help in this life and heaven in the next. It is embracing that those holes that your finger is in right now came because of your sin. Let us go to his feet. The feet of a man symbolize what he's conquered. What a man stands on. I stand on a man like this. It shows that I am a victor over him. This is a worldwide symbol. Colossians 2.14 says, He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle <coughs> over him. Whatever stands against us, that bloody foot right there triumphed over That's hard to see, isn't it? That's what bought our victory. Is that cheap? Is that greasy grace? Is that, oh, well, I got away with it so I can do it some more? Is that it? Because if that happened to me, and y'all were watching, and I'm a pretty worthless human being outside of Christ, and if I did that for you, I don't think you would treat me that way. Sometimes he's out of sight and out of mind, isn't he? That foot bought your victory. He took upon him everything that had been triumphing over you. Everything that ever beat you down and he's put it under his foot. And he's invited you to come stand on top of it too. Will you be obedient? In my heart, I'm crying out in the middle of my sentence, yes. By Jesus' death on the cross and the resurrection, he has put your sin your fear, your defeat under His feet. Jesus' feet bring you victory. Let us look into Jesus' heads. His head. I don't know why, friends. That is so hard to see. We've been telling children about it our whole lives. For 2,000 years we tell this story. But we don't like to look into it, do we? And when you do look into it on a Catholic crucifix, somehow or another it's off-worldly. It's distant. It's detached. But if you walked with him for three and a half years and saw this done to him, 
You saw him twist together the thorn on his head that Matthew 27, 29 says. The thorn is first mentioned in Genesis. It's a part of the curse that came on Adam. Jesus was crowned with the curse of pain, suffering, and poverty that entered the world through Adam's sin, through your sin, my sin. He was crowned with thorns so that the curse could be removed. Paul said in Philippians 4.19, My God will supply all my needs according to His glory, His riches in Christ Jesus. Jesus' head brings us blessings. Next time somebody's talking to you about prosperity gospel, I hope that this comes to your mind. I hope so. Next time somebody's asking you if you want the drug dealer's vehicle, next time somebody's telling you that God wants you rich, I hope you see the cost. Because I tell you what, I don't want anything this world has to offer. And anything that God puts at my disposal is for His disposal. Period. And I've heard a lot of people say that, but their cars get bigger every year, their suits get nicer every year, their accounts get fatter every year, and He is worth more than that. Amen. Amen. I didn't come to teach a doctrinal treatise this morning. But in light of that, doesn't that seem kind of stupid? 365 confessions of prosperity? Doesn't that seem kind of stupid in light of that? Because that's a human being who hurt just like us. Some years ago, I filed a 16 penny, a 16D nail through my hand. Where you at, Jacob Braun? Jacob showed up because I couldn't reach my hammer. I couldn't leave the fence I had just nailed myself to. Like that monkey. Pierced by my own sin, my own stupidity, and absolutely unable to free myself. Jacob handed me a hammer. You drive it all the way through or you pull it out, you gotta make a decision. And it's gonna cost you something. That is like a splendor compared to what it cost you. And the physical agony is the smallest part, friends. He had never been separated from his father, but he was willing to be separated from his father for you so that you never had to be. His head brings us blessings. Let's go to his side. In John 19, 34, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The piercing of Jesus' heart represents the breaking of a heart. I've been pastoring long enough to know that in a room this size, some people are captive to sins of lust, but others are captive to something entirely different. You've been hurt. The devil kneaded it into the dough and fabric of your life, molested, victimized. His side was pierced and blood and water flowed. That side is pierced to bring you an inner healing. The flushing of your heart. He taught his disciples to pray. And in that prayer, he said, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I want to tell you a truth. I don't have a personal interest in this truth. It's not that I'm going to go home put a notch on some spiritual chart on my wall because I told you about it. I'm going to tell you that this truth hurts me as much as I expect it will hurt you. If you do not forgive, you can't help me forgive. Amen. 
That's the truth. But if you're willing to forgive, there's nothing that you can't be forgiven of. I told you the will of God would crush you. Say, so, well, well, I, I have forgiven. Really? Can you speak their name? Can you look at a picture of them without emotion rushing up in you? When you do get on your knees to pray, does their face come up? Forgiveness, friends, is a choice. And I'm just going to tell you, harboring unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for them to die. It will not work. In my experience as a pastor, nothing has been more damaging than people that cannot forgive. And I don't want to say those people who cannot forgive. It's been my observation everybody struggles to do it. And that it's something that's required many, 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 many times in your life. And most people that claim to have don't bear the kind of fruit that says to have. Maybe now we could take stock of our life and say, Jesus' side brought healing in my inner being. At least it's supposed to. We're going to take communion here in a minute. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 1. I would like you to see verse 8. Joy, would you put it on the screen if you can? Mm-hmm. 2 Corinthians 1. And verse 8. do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the providence of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. When you look into the cross, you are supposed to feel the sentence of death. You're supposed to look and something about it should cry out, it's not fair. Something about it should cry out, that by all rights should be me. And you've heard these sermons so often that it's like Samson walking through a vineyard with no cost. But I tell you what you mean, it's different. It's just different. I'm going to tell you the reason we face the cross, the reason that we have a communion meal to commemorate it, is so that you can remember you purchased your obedience. And you're absolutely, utterly incapable of giving Him your obedience. It's way, way beyond your ability. Unless you're relying solely upon Him. What a mystery this gospel is. You must obey me. And by the way, I know you will not be able to obey me if I don't give you the strength. So I'm going to give you the strength according to the effort that you put into following me. You want me? Hunger and thirst. I'll fill you more. You want me? Seek me. You'll find me. I'll be found by you. Knock. I'll open it to you. You want me? I'm worth it. Follow me. Get your hand off uh, or keep your hand on the plow. Quit looking backwards. Destruction is behind you. You want help? I will give you help. Follow me. This has always been the gospel. When you look at the cross, there's no way around finding guilt in your life. You're supposed to. 
And it's supposed to bring you to the conclusion of, Lord, I cannot do this without you. And I've not been dependent enough upon you. I thought I could have this and that. And it's made a monkey out of me. And I was called to be a son of God. Come on, how's that for an evolution message? It's made a monkey out of us. We're going to take communion together. We're going to sing. We're going to worship together. And I want to tell you, if this becomes a dry religious ritual for you, you'd do better to get out of church. You would. And here's why. The day that the cross does not move us, the day that His presence does not move us, we do ourselves a disservice to be associated with Him and not moved by Him. I don't want anybody to leave. I want you to be moved in your heart by the power of the gospel. This happens when men are honest in His presence. This happens when you're able to speak out loud unmentionable things and say, Lord, I need your help. There's a thing that happens in churches. To get communion, we usually have these confirmation things. We often read people legal requirements. Say, hey, if you eat this or drink this in an unworthy manner, it's judgment upon you. If you live in an unworthy manner, it's judgment upon you. Do you think it's only when you take communion? I was in a church with a pastor. He said he likes to see who does and doesn't take communion and tells him who's right with God and who's not. I thought, you are so wrong. This is not a meal that you back up from and you say, you know what? I don't feel right with God. I'm not going to take it. This is a meal that is a choice to get right with God. Amen. This is a chance to say, your body for my life, Lord. But now you own my life. Lord, your blood for my nastiness. But now I will be righteous. That's what this is. We're going to sing. We're going to worship together. At some point, you'll come grab communion elements. I ask just one thing, that we all take them together. You can get them at any time you want, but this is one thing that we need to not be individual Americans on. I know we say he's my personal savior. I know we say all of those things, but I want you to understand something. He died for everybody in the room. And you should be concerned for everybody in the room. And that concern should overflow to everybody outside of the room. That's why you pray for Indra's mom. That's why you go to Mexico to feed the orphans. That's why you go to your neighbors and talk to them about the changed life. So I'm going to ask you something. As we do this, let's not just think about getting your life right with God. Let's also ask for the power to help other people get their lives right with God. We're a kingdom of priests. Not a church with a priest, a kingdom. Let's worship again.